Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and this is your midweek Bible study. It's Wednesday, November 29th. It's great to be with you. Thanks for taking time to join me. We're continuing in our study of the book of James. Today is chapter 4, verses 1 to 17, the entire chapter. We're going to study two more incredible topics that James brings up. First is submitting yourselves to God, and the second is trusting God in making plans. Here's a brief summary. Disciples are to submit themselves to God as his servants, rather than devoting themselves to selfish and prideful pursuit of their own passions. There's a lot to talk about today, so let's get to it. But before we do, we always start with a word of prayer, so let's do that right now. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we worship you, we celebrate you, thank you for everything that you have done, continue to do, and will do. Lord, I pray that you would make us one with you, that God, our hearts would be right with you. Thank you for all that have come to join today. Teach us from your word in this chapter four of James. In your holy name we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. All right, get those Bible or Bible apps open to James chapter four, starting with verse one. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you, he says? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Our first question today is this. Apparently, there was fighting and quarreling amongst the readers of James' letter. Who are they, and what is the reason that they're fighting and quarreling? The word quarrels refers to fighting without weapons, as in personal conflicts. These conflicts have nothing to do with quarrels with the pagan world or the unbelieving world. These are quarrels within the church among believers. James is describing a condition where a group has come to a state of war with open skirmishes breaking out among people. Sides have been chosen and positions have been dug in. In cases like this, believers have ceased being peacemakers. Instead, they live in open antagonism toward one another. The word fights refers to battles with weapons, an armed conflict. It was used figuratively to indicate the struggle between powers, both earthly and spiritual. Obviously, disagreements will occur in every church, but when they happen, Are we wise enough to understand why? Do we know their source? When handled correctly with godly wisdom, they can actually lead to growth. But sadly, some churches become permanent battlegrounds. New believers find themselves in the crossfire of arguments, resentments, and power struggles that may carry a veneer of spiritual truth, but are more often simply personal conflicts between people. In the process, innocent bystanders are sometimes deeply wounded. Many of us know people who have been, maybe we have ourselves, who have been alienated from the church because of a conflict that had nothing to do with the gospel. Fights and quarrels are being caused not by some external source, but by the people's evil desires. When everyone seeks his or her own pleasure, only strife, hatred, and division can result. The last phrase, at war within, suggests a raging battle fought between the desire to do good and a desire to do evil. Verse 2 is next. It says, You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Here's the question. Here James describes a craving of sorts. What are the people craving for and why? The craving James is describing here becomes so strong that the people scheme and kill to get it. The word kill can be taken as an exaggeration for bitter hatred. Instead of rethinking their desires, the people described here resort to jealousy, fights, quarrels, and worse. 
Yet for all their anxious self-seeking and antagonism in getting what they want, they still can't get it. Why? We learned from getting our first tricycle or doll to driving our first car that fulfilled desires don't satisfy at the level they advertise. Sometimes we actually do get what we wanted only to discover that we still don't have what we really needed. And that's the deep contentment that only comes when we're right with God. Trusted alone, our desires will only lead us to the things of this earth and not to the things of God. Now to summarize, the reason you don't have what you want is because you don't ask God for it. In other words, you don't have what you desire because you don't desire God. Verse three is next, it says, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. The question is, almost as bad as not asking is asking for the wrong reason or reasons. What does that mean? Unpack that a little bit. If we misunderstand the correct use of prayer, we might not pray at all, or we might attempt to manipulate God. Later, James will make it clear that when we pray, we must humble ourselves before God, otherwise we'll not be answered. People shouldn't be surprised when their prayers aren't answered because often their motives are all wrong. They were going to spend what they received on their pleasures, the same word desires in verse 1. The people's desires were so strong that they were fighting, quarreling, and using their prayers to get what they wanted. Their motives were not to help others, but to satisfy people. Verse 4 is next, and it reads, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Well, James uses a shocking term in this verse to describe the people's spiritual unfaithfulness. What is that shocking term, and what is the overall meaning of this verse? The shocking term that James uses is the word adulterers to graphically describe the spiritual unfaithfulness of the people and it is intended to jar them into facing their true spiritual condition. These believers were trying to love God and have an affair with the world. The fact that God would express in the strongest terms possible the importance of faithfulness ought to unsettle us. Biblical standards of personal, marital, and spiritual behavior are under a constant attack of erosion. We are bombarded with the message to compromise. From the world's point of view, we should be flexible, tolerant of sin, and accommodating. But it won't work because friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God, James says. For believers, the world and God are two distinct objects of affection, but they are in direct opposite nature. The world is the system of evil under Satan's control, all that is opposite to God. To be friendly with the world, then, is to adopt its values and desires. You see, these believers may indeed love God, but they're also infatuated with the benefits of this world's system. They worship God, but they want the influence, living standards, financial security, and perhaps some of the freedom the world offers. These pursuits will only undermine the generosity, caring, and sharing that should characterize Christians. When, then, is a believer's proper relationship to the world? Some have used biblical statements like this one from James as a basis for a radical withdrawal from the world. But withdrawal is not the answer. Although it is true that we are called to be in this world but not of this world or according to this world, we should love the people in this world enough to give them the gospel. To do so, we need to befriend them without befriending the things of this world that are opposed to God. Next is verse 5. It says, Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. 
Well, now James asks another rhetorical question to make a point. What is his point? First of all, let me say, as many Bible scholars note, this is one of the most difficult verses to translate in all the New Testament. The translation issue has to do with how we read the original Greek text. Either James was saying that God, who caused his spirit to dwell in the believers, is jealous for their friendship, or he was just saying that the spirit that God put in man is one prone to jealousy and therefore must be kept in check. The point of the statement is to affirm the believer's friendship with God over friendship against the world. We may say that we will befriend both God and the world, but in practice, we can only choose one way. The more we give ourselves to the world, the stronger will be our allegiance to the world. The more we give ourselves to God, the stronger will be our bond with him. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, wherever your treasure is, there your heart and thoughts will also be. Next is verse six, and it says, and he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here's the question. Why does God oppose the proud? And what does James say about grace? God opposes the proud because pride makes us self-centered and it leads us to conclude that we deserve all that we can see, touch, or imagine. It creates a greedy appetite for far more than we need. Pride can subtly cause us to no longer see our sins or our need for forgiveness. But humility, oh yes, humility. It opens the way for God's grace to flow into our lives so that God gives grace generously. Humility is not weakness. Instead, it is the only place believers gain courage to face their temptations and sins with God's strength. As God gives us more grace, we realize that the world's seductive attractions are only cheap substitutes for what God has to offer. It's our choice. We can humble ourselves and receive God's grace, or we can continue in our pride and self-sufficiency and experience his anger. Next up, verse 7, it says, So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, according to this verse, how should we respond when we realize we've been on the world's path again? We are to humble ourselves before God, as James says, by recognizing both his friendship and his authority. We enter a relationship with God, not as equals, but as trusted servants. Although he's not specifically defining the term, James is describing the life of faith. True faith responds to God actively rather than passively. Although God initiates and facilitates all that occurs between us and him, our involvement is never entirely excluded. Personal humility before God is part of living faith. Satan knows that as long as he can stimulate human pride, he can delay God's plan, even if only temporarily. But as powerful as Satan is, his only power over believers is in his powerful temptations. We can resist the devil, and what will he do? He will flee from us, James says. On the other hand, a lack of resistance will practically guarantee ongoing harassment by Satan. Once we've identified the devil as our enemy, we need to understand who he is and how he operates in order to effectively resist him. The devil's primary purpose is to separate man from God. Destined for destruction, he wants to take as many of creation with him as he possibly can. Now, among the reasons we so desperately need God's grace is that we're locked in mortal combat with a superior enemy. We need God's help to resist Satan's separating schemes and instead draw near to God. Verse 8 is up next. It says, come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Here's the question. 
In this verse, James calls us to draw near to someone. Who is it and why? James calls us to draw near to or come close to God. But then James says to wash your hands. Wash your hands of something and or someone? Well, why would he say that? The command to wash your hands means to purify our actions and change our external behavior. In other words, the way we live, it matters to God. As we draw near to God, we will become aware of habits and actions in our lives that are not pleasing to him. Washing our hands pictures the removal of these things from the way that we live. We must distance ourselves from the sins that God points out. Similarly, the command to purify our hearts calls for purity of thoughts and motive, which is our internal behavior. The people could not remain hypocrites trying to love both God and the world. Purity of heart, then, implies single-mindedness. Verse 9 is next. It says, Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Now, in this verse, James calls us to engage in an emotional response. An emotional response to what? As God draws near to us, we ought to sense our unworthiness. He began by describing people in conflict with each other and within themselves. Then he described the source of those conflicts as inappropriate desires, motivated in large part by trying to stay close to the world and to God. Unmasking of such a life and calling believers to humility may not be a welcome message, Surrender may not come easily. Long-held desires may include remembering how far we have broken from God's way before we turn back. These different terms, sorrow, deep grief, sadness, and gloom, they capture the struggle of a soul drawing near to God. There is a dying which takes place. This is a call to deep and heartfelt repentance. The people's laughter, in other words, scornful laughter that refuse to take sin seriously, and their joy in the world's pleasures need to be completely changed to mourning over their sins. Until this happens, there's no room for the laughter of real freedom and the joy of the Lord. The Christian life involves joy, but when we realize our sins, we must be mournful so that we can repent. Only after mourning can we move on to joy in the grace God gives us. Verse 10 is next. It says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. So now James says we are to humble ourselves before the Lord. Well, how do we do that? And why should we do that? And what's going to be the result when we do? To humble ourselves before the Lord and admit dependence on him means recognizing that our worth comes from God alone. It's recognizing our desperate need for him to help and submit to his will for our lives. Although we don't deserve God's favor, he reaches out to us in love and he gives us worth and dignity despite our human shortcomings. When we do so, the promise is sure. He will lift us up in honor. One of the most touching biblical illustrations of this truth is found in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. The son took his inheritance and set out to be the world's best friend. It was not until he found himself bankrupt in every way that he repented. He returned home grieving. The son confessed to his father that he was unworthy to be called a son, but the father, he lifted him up and welcomed him back into the family. The act of returning required submission. The wayward son's words of repentance required humility. The end result was a great joy. Humility before God will be followed by his lifting us up. Amen. Verse 11 is next. It says, 
Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. Wow, that's awesome. Now, with an abrupt shift from describing an appropriate attitude toward God, James turns to the proper relations between believers. What is his message? We love God by being humble before him. We love our neighbor by refusing to speak evil. To speak evil can take many forms. We may speak the truth about a person and still be unkind, or we may speak gossip that others have no business knowing. We may be questioning someone's authority or nullifying their good work by backbiting. Obviously, this hurts the harmony among believers. The tense in the Greek reveals that James is forbidding a practice that's already in progress. The people were in the habit of criticizing one another. This verse is interesting because it includes the sixth and seventh times in his letter that James has mentioned God's law. It's the royal law, the law that frees or convicts, the law that must help. Here the law is under attack. The specific problem being confronted violates the ninth commandment, do not speak falsely against your neighbor. It also violates the more fundamental law of Christ, love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22, 39. Jesus called this the second great commandment. If a believer speaks against another believer, he is criticizing and judging the law because he's not showing love and is not treating others as he would like to be treated. His disobedience shows disregard for the law, for he's passing judgment on its validity. And by doing so, he's putting himself above God. When we judge one another in a slanderous way, we are clearly failing to submit to God. Verse 12 is next. It says, God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? What does this verse say about who God is and what he has the power to do? God alone is both the source and the enforcer of the law. We who are accountable to God's law cannot place ourselves in God's place. God rewards those who obey the law and destroys those who disobey. James also takes away any rights we might claim for criticizing our neighbors. Behind the critical spirit is an attitude that tries to usurp God's authority and is full of pride. There should not be critical or harsh fault-finding in the body of Christ. The principle in his tense does not prohibit the proper action of a church against a member who is acting in flagrant disobedience to God. Rather, James is concerned with the critical speech that condemns or judges others' actions and their standing with God. He's confronting individuals who might be tempted to set themselves up as personal watchdogs on other believers. We might think that just criticizing a church member or spreading a little interesting gossip is not serious, especially when compared to other sins. But friend, the Bible sees it as a sin, a sin of the utmost seriousness because it breaks the law of love and it tries to usurp God's authority. Like we studied in chapter 3, the tongue is a tool of deadly sin. We dare not minimize its danger. Now let's prepare to study the closing verses 13 to 17. Here we're going to find the progression has moved from humbling ourselves and our relationships to God to our future and the need to entrust it to God. So let's go. Here's verse 13. Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We'll do business there and make a profit. The question is, who do you think James is talking about in this verse? And what's his point? The you who say, do you see that part of the verse? Right in the front, the you who say in this verse, I think it most likely refers to business people. Addressing this letter to scattered people presumes, at least in part, 
people moving to establish new lives in distant places. But its lessons apply to any situation that requires planning. Look, planning is not evil. In fact, business people are wise to plan ahead. But the problem that James addresses is that God is not included in those plans. The merchants plan with arrogance, thinking they can go wherever they like, stay for as long as they like, and do whatever they want. Their way of planning, doing business, and using money may be honest, but it's really no different than the planning of any pagan or any unbelieving business person. These Christian business people ought to know better. And that leads into verse 14, which says, Well, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. The question is, what does James say is the problem with these well-made plans? He says the problem is no one knows what life's going to be like tomorrow to say nothing of the future. These people were planning as if their futures were guaranteed. James is not suggesting that they make no plans because of the possible disaster that may come, but to be realistic about the future as they trust God to guide them. Because the future is uncertain, it's even more important that we completely depend on God. Our lives are uncertain, like the morning fog, it says, that covers the countryside in the morning and that's burned away by the sun. Life is short no matter how long we live. We shouldn't be deceived into thinking we have plenty of time left to live for Christ, to enjoy our loved ones, or to do what we know we should. Today is the day to live for God. Then, no matter when our lives end, we will have fulfilled God's plan for us. Verse 15 is next. It says, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. The question is, how are we to demonstrate our awareness of our dependence on God? Believers can't live independently of God, so our plans cannot ignore him. We must make sure that those plans include the clause, if the Lord wants us to. It's got to be there. We are to plan, but we are to recognize God's higher will and divine sovereignty. This means far more than just saying, if the Lord wants, whenever we speak about future plans, for that too can become meaningless. It means planning with God when we make our plans, before, during, and after. Our plans should be evaluated by God's standards and goals, and they should be prayed over with the time spent listening to God's advice. That kind of planning pleases God. Verse 16 is next. It says, otherwise you're boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. Well, this verse brings into focus once again verses 13 and 14. What is James's point here in verse 16? You know, I think there's really a simple answer here. Instead of focusing on God's will in their plans, these business people were arrogantly boasting as though they could control their own destiny. And that kind of boasting is evil, James says. Why? Because it takes no thought of God. We would do wise to heed those words. And now, beloved, we've reached the last verse for the day. Verse 17, the end of chapter 4. Here we go. Remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Last question says, seemingly out of nowhere, James says this very profound statement. What does it mean? Beloved, this verse sums up all chapters 1 through 4 and the entire ethical problem in the book of James. He might be telling these merchants that they know what they should do, that is, honor God in their business practices, and if they ignore that, they sin. But in a broader sense, James adds these words as an admonition for all of his readers to do what he's written, which was, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. In other words, they've been told, we've been told, so we really have no excuse. They didn't have any excuse then, and we don't have any today. We tend to limit sin to specific acts, doing wrong, it says. 
But James tells us that sin is also not doing what is right. These two kinds of sins are sometimes called sins of commission and sins of omission. It's a sin to lie. It can also be a sin to know the truth and not tell it. It's a sin to speak evil of someone. It's also a sin to avoid that person when you know they need your friendship. We should be willing to help others as the Holy Spirit guides us. And if God has directed you to do a kind act, to render a service to others, or to restore a relationship, then beloved, do it. You will experience a renewed and refreshed vitality to your Christian faith. Amen to that. I think we can all use that. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our study today. What a journey it's been talking about some incredible topics, submitting yourselves to God and trusting God in making our plans. I hope you found this to be insightful, encouraging, and challenging. Now, we've only got two more sessions left before we break for Christmas, so let's finish strong. Next week, we're going to continue. We're going to look at the last chapter of James, James chapter 5. We're going to start out with verses 1 through 12, and in two weeks, we'll finish it up. And next week, we're going to talk about two more significant topics, a warning to the rich and patience in suffering. I want to thank you again for joining us today. Thanks for your time. We greatly appreciate that. Have a terrific rest of your day and week. We'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church, real people, a real God, real hope.